eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is the Ed Milet Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. Really excited. You know, I've had a list of people I wanted to have on the show for a long time. Our producers will tell you this, and there's this kind of short list of people that I've always wanted to talk to personally, kind of selfishly want to get to know them better. And this man is one of the people on that list. And fortunately for us, he's got a new book out called Straight Shooter, and it's a New York Times bestseller. It's been crushing. And this man's life and career has just really exploded the last decade. A lot of hard work for many, many years to get where he is. He's become a household name. He's really an icon in sports media. And uh, I had no idea the struggle of his life to get where he is. And I was actually moved a couple times basically to water in the eyes, teary-eyed, reading his work and hearing his story. So grateful to have Stephen A. Smith on the show today. Stephen, welcome, brother. Ed, honored to you, man. Thank you for having me. How you doing? I'm doing good. And I got to tell you, I... So are you, by the way. <laughs> and I was uh, I was reading your story, and I want to kind of just get into it because I've always been fascinated by you. I watch you almost every morning. I grab about 20 minutes with you guys almost every morning as I'm getting ready for my day. And I don't know why. I just had this I just had this feeling about you that was wrong. Like, this, this guy's had it pretty easy. He's just got this swagger and confidence about him, everything in his life, because you're so talented, you know, skilled i think is probably more the right word because you've worked at these skills and then i'm reading in your book and there's just so many things like the first literally paragraph of the book gripped me but then as we move on i want to kind of skip around a little bit you start out your your life you're held back kind of in the third grade this isn't listen yeah. to everybody it's one of the most articulate men with the best vocabulary in all of television you're held back in the third grade you scoot through in summertime so you do make it to the fourth grade and then you actually get held back in the fourth grade and there's this incredible story about you overhearing your mom and dad talking and i know you've told it on a few shows but i i hope you can tell it like it's the first time here because i think this will move people to know you get a little bit of adversity in your life you can overcome it so share that story with them well um appreciate you having me i, I think uh just recalling it um you know i have to get let back in the third grade the previous june and having everybody and all the kids in the neighborhood and stuff like that laughing at you, that was humiliating enough. And then uh, have to repeat it um, in the fourth grade to repeat that experience. And this time held back for the whole year. Having to repeat that was excruciatingly humiliating. Um, and so when the guys in the neighborhood were laughing at me or whatever, I went to my back porch and I cried and I was laying in my back I was sitting rather than my back porch to my mother's house in Hollis, Queens, New York. And there was a little window, a gap separating the kitchen from the um, back porch. And it was, there was an open window there. And my mother and father were talking and my mother was informing my father that I had gotten left back in. And my father looked at her and he said, look, the boy just ain't smart. He ain't gonna be any, he's not gonna be any, he's not gonna do anything with his life. You just need to accept that now and get over and get it over with. And I heard him say that clear as day. And for some reason, I don't know what my mother heard, but my mother came to that window and she looked out and she just had this horrifying look when she saw me looking through the window. And she saw that I saw and heard what he had said. And, you know, she, you know, through the grace of God, my mother was a wonderful, wonderful woman, greatest woman I've ever known. Um, she, you know, he, he was imploring her to give up on me and she wasn't having it. She refused to, to relent in any way. She believed in me and she believed that whatever struggles that I was having in this particular instance, it was reading comprehension, which ultimately was diagnosed dyslexia. Um, she was just determined to make me overcome it and, and, and for me to make something of myself. And so she wouldn't heed his words. She wouldn't heed his counsel or his advice at all, but that's what happened. Thank God that, uh, you know, there's these lights in our lives. You know, you, you named the book after your mother is what I've learned. Yes. And, yes, uh, 
you know, there's these moments in our lives where there's these people that believe in us that just give us a glimpse of what's possible in our lives. But as I watch you every day, I'm like, this dude had dyslexia and gets held yeah. back. Like, this is hard to imagine. But then there's a couple of things that I've noticed about you over the years. And I want you to share this because in the seed of every adversity, right, there's some kind of blessing if you find it. Yeah. So you get this dyslexia. Your sister is another saint in your life, right? Your oldest sister, I think. Is it Linda? Linda. Linda. Yeah, Linda. Yeah. Linda ends up, tell them what your sister did for you. And ultimately, I think there's a connection with this dictionary that I want to ask you about. So can you tell them what your sister did with you? Because there's these people that pour into us in life and then, you know, where everybody has somebody help them become successful. But this is extraordinary. Well, my sister Linda was um, was an educator. She graduated as a valedictorian from the high school level as well. She was a brilliant, brilliant woman. Uh, she still is. She's alive to this day. I don't mean to speak about it in the past tense. I'm just talking about that at a particular moment in time in terms of helping me. And she was she was aware. Obviously, my mother had told her what my father had said about me. Um, and Linda recognized how humiliated and embarrassed that I was. And she was like, we're going to overcome this. And so from that moment forward, she would literally sit me down every day. And she taught me how to read her and on a set on separate occasions, along with a, a childhood friend named Tiver. He was the bigger brother of one of my best friends, Ronnie Robinson, growing up. And he would teach. He was a brilliant person himself and he would always teach me how to read. But it really started with my sister, Linda. She would sit me down every day. She would go over things to read. It didn't matter whether it was social studies, it was political science it was it was sports it didn't matter what it was anything that she could get her hands on she would force me to read and we would go over it over and over and over again and I'm talking about every day for at least a year to two years she was just relentless with this she wouldn't stop um she was that dedicated to my growth and my my upliftment and she would remind me you want a dad right you want daddy to, to be right with what he's saying about you you want this to be you you know, your narrative, for lack of a better word, she would say these things to me to motivate me and to encourage me to push forward and to work hard and to put forth my level of due diligence and perseverance in order to overcome, you know, what I was going through. And sure, I don't know how it happened. She was the one that told me I had what they call dyslexia. She said, these are clear signs and symptoms of it. And she was like, here's how we're going to overcome it. What she would do is she encouraged me and started me off. She said, anything you don't understand, any word, um, any use of the word in a sentence structure, whatever you don't understand, you stop. You grab the dictionary and you pick it up. You read it. You, you look at the definition of the word and see how it's utilized. And you don't move on until you understand what that is. And her, her reasoning, her rationale, and I really didn't get into it in this part in the book, what her rationale was is that you're losing confidence when you don't understand. So what we're going to do is we're gonna make sure how slow, how much of a slow roll it is, no matter how long it takes, what we're gonna make sure is that you understand what you're reading sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. We don't care how long it takes because the objective is for you not to get through a whole bunch of reading material. The objective is to make sure you understand whatever it is you're reading, no matter how little the content is or how extensive the content is. Once you do that, you'll see your confidence elevate. And as a result of your confidence elevating, you'll be able to move forward with more degree, with more degree of comfort. That was her strategy and it ended up working to perfection. You, to this day, still do that, don't you? You'll use a dictionary. To this day. Is that unbelievable? To this day. You know, if I don't understand the word or its usage, I will stop. I will call up the dictionary on my phone. I will look up the word. I will look up the sentence structure in which it's used to make sure I comprehend the change, and then I will move on. What's crazy about this to me is that I have this theory that if you can survive temporary pain on your life, and everybody goes through pain of some type, but if you can survive it and get through it on the other side of temporary pain, I always say you meet another version of yourself. You meet some yeah. skill, talent, ability, whatever it might be about you. You didn't have before you've had this level of pain. And for you, one of the things, I don't even know if you realize this, but when I watch you, one of the things that I've always been struck by is your vocabulary. Like no one on TV ever said that's blasphemous until Stephen A. Smith, <laughs> right? Like there's right. these words you use and you know it, you do it as a little bit of an art form and kind of a character sometimes I think, but you use these words that most people aren't familiar with from time to time. And I have to think like, 
part of that has to be the fact that you're at your face in the dictionary. That's the irony of this whole thing. You don't have, you don't get held back. You don't find out you get dyslexia. You don't start putting your nose in a dictionary all the time. You probably don't have the vocabulary you have now. That's that's one of the skills you've used to build this prolific career. Isn't that ironic? It is. It is ironic. And that's why my mother was so proud. Like, you know, if I were a basketball player or a professional athlete or something like that, she would have been proud of me. I'm a law abiding citizen. I'm not in jail. I don't break any laws or anything like that. So she would have been proud of me, but there was an extra oomph to it over what I had become successful at. I had become a successful journalist, which required me to read and to write. And it's exactly what my impediment was in elementary school. And so it always touched my mother in a way um, that that's what I was successful at doing. But I remember one of my one of my most fun moments on television occurred like, like literally a few months ago. I was on there with Dan Orlovsky, who's a football analyst for ESPN, does an exceptional job. And we were joking around and he said something about a word that I said. And I said loquacious and he was like, spell it like I didn't know. And I spelled that L-O-Q-U-A-C-I-O-U-S. He said, and then I said persnickety, and he said, what to spell it? And I said that. Then another word, I said, actually, that's the wrong usage of the word is this way, and this is how it's spelled. And he was like, whoa. You know, it was like, because they, they, you know, folks joke around, and they look at me and say, well, he uses these words. But then they really realize, well, damn, he really knows it. You know what I mean? He knows it. He knows how to spell it. He knows what it means, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was, it was fun because, for me, it was validation that, it's not a joke. It's not something that I just do and I just say, all right, this is what I'm doing. And you, you, you may not think that is the case, but it very well is the case. I'm still that guy that looks in the dictionary. I'm still that guy that, did, you know, proper spelling, you know, proper definition and proper context and use of words and things of that nature. I still pay attention to those things and I still haven't perfected it and I'll never perfected it. I'll never perfect it. But the point is, is that it forces me to do my due diligence. I'm reading an article in the Wall Street Journal just the other day. One of my favorite columnists in the world is Peggy Noonan. I've never met her or anything like that, but I think she's an absolutely fabulous columnist. And there were three words that she had in there that I never saw before. And so I stopped reading and went to the dictionary and looked up the words and its usage. It's just what I do. It's just what I do. That's why I love doing the show because people can meet the goats. I mean, you're one of the goats in your craft. and to hear the stories of how they became this is just unreal. Those of you that are listening, some of your greatest deficiencies can end up being the the things that are you're the most gifted and talented at later in your life and to leverage yeah. those things. The other thing that strikes me is this notion of confidence though. And, you know, you've interviewed for everybody from Michael, you, everybody, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, you talked with everybody. And I've always believed there is a direct correlation, I mean, between confidence and performance. And I watch it with you. There's a, look, there's an energy about you. I said swagger when I started, but really what it is, is there's a confidence. There's an air of, um, you know, I've earned this, you know, I'm going to keep earning this every single day. I've put the work in. And when athletes lose their way, I work on the mental games of a lot of different athletes. When they lose it, it people ask me all the time, what do you work with when you're on the mental games with most of the athletes you work with? You know what the truth is? Confidence. Yeah. Separators typically come. Someone goes in a slump. No it's their confidence level. So how has that played in for you? And what would you tell the world here about that topic of confidence? How you actually build it? What are what are some of the things to build confidence and how correlated is confidence to producing even results for you? Well, first of all, I think it's important to know what you sign up for. Like, for example, before we started doing this interview, you let me know what this podcast is all about and what you strive to us, what you strive to achieve with your interviews and what you strive to achieve overall with the podcast. It's mastering you and what you do. And in my to use my language, knowing what you signed up for and fully embracing it. You have a lot of athletes, for example, because as you pointed out, I cover many of them where the true, true, truly great ones are the ones who've accepted a long time ago, this is what I signed up for. This is what's required to exceed at a very high level. And this is what I'm going to do. Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, God rest his soul, who was a friend. He sat up there and pointed out he didn't negotiate with himself. If he said he was getting up at 5.30, he was getting up at 5.30. It was non-negotiable because he had already made that commitment and he wasn't going to compromise 
realize the commitment. He understood what he signed up for. And from a physical perspective, there's a window. And when that window closes, it closes and it's okay because everybody can't do what they always did physically in my chosen profession. Well, I happen to be able to do this for years to come. And so my confidence comes from the fact that I have a passion for what I do. I know I'm knowledgeable about what I do. And now it comes down to my ability to convince you to see my truth more than your ability to convince others to see your truth. And I always believe I'm going to win. I never, ever, ever go into any scenario in terms of a debate format as it pertains to sports television and think that I am inferior to anyone. I do recognize the fact that there are those who came before me whose knowledge for the world of sports is far more extensive than mine because I can read about something, but they were there. I can talk about somebody, but they talked to them. I understand the different advantages, the advantages that they may have or whatever. But when it comes to communicating with the audience, although that's relevant, it's not applicable in the, to convincing them to see your side. It's not enough that you spoke to them. It's not enough that you were there for an event in person. What matters is your presentation, how you articulate your thoughts, why you feel the way that you feel, what you want to convey to an audience, the manner in which you choose to convey your thoughts, your perspectives, your belief to that audience, and what level of substantive foundation you have to back you up. Those things supersede your presence in somebody's face or at an event. And that's where my domain comes in because I've spoken to many people myself and I've interviewed many people myself. But the other side to it is that I have a perspective that I think is relatable to the audience out there that I've targeted, meaning I know who the audience is. I know who's listening to me. I know who's talking about me. I know who's tuning in to watch me or to listen to me. So I'm armed and ready and dangerous as hell when it comes to that because practice favors the prepared mind. And I was ready to go before the cameras ever came on. That's my mentality. And as a result of that, I'm never fearful. I never look at myself as second fiddle. I literally, for better or worse, look at everyone else on a platform with me as if they're in my way because the audience is waiting to hear from me. That is the kind of mentality I have every single day that I'm in front of the camera. I love it. I watched you the other day. We, we don't have to get into this thing, but I just want to say is to acknowledge how true is what you just said. I watched you with Jay Williams the other day. You guys got into it. I know you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy that played basketball at a pretty very high level. Had he not got hurt, would probably been yes. a Hall of Fame basketball. College player of the year, national champion, number two overall draft. Jay Williams is the real deal. Absolute real deal. And I watch you go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a full body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See eBay Motors. Hey, guys, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. You know, in all of my businesses, and I've been blessed to have several of them, I've used Indeed now for a number of years. And the main reason I do it is, I, if you're like me, I don't want to waste a bunch of time interviewing people that aren't qualified for the positions that I have. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world, right? Or they are qualified, but they're not interested in making the move at the given time. And so with Indeed, you have a thing called Instant Match where they match you with quality candidates within 24 hours. And you're in front of people that want the job, that are qualified for it, and that you probably want to hire. I wouldn't go anywhere else. They've delivered great candidates to multiple businesses that I have right now. So here's what's great. Listeners and viewers on my show, you get a $75 sponsored job credit right now to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MyLet. Just go to Indeed.com slash MyLet, which is M-Y-L-E-T-T -T, right now. 
And you can support our show by saying you heard about Indeed here. That would be great, by the way. Indeed.com slash MyLet. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Let me tell you one thing I noticed about you that's a subtlety. All great salespeople have it. All great communicators have it. And it's super subtle. I don't even know if you're aware that you do it, but I want to acknowledge something about you, and I want everyone to have a lesson from it. One of the reasons he has such high confidence and so persuasive is I think amateur persuaders, salespeople, marketers, broadcasters, debaters, like what Stephen does on his show, they try to get you to believe what they're saying. And that's one level of persuasion. You do something real subtle that's different. Everyone at that table with you, by the way, is very good. And they're always trying to get people to believe what they're saying. The reason you're a level above is you're not doing that. You're trying to get people to believe you believe what you're saying. And that's a subtle difference. That's a subtlety that most people don't understand. If you're always trying to get people to believe what you're saying, you come across as a little bit desperate, a little bit underneath. But when you come from a place of, you're going to believe I believe this. You're going to believe I believe it. The phraseology, the words, the framing of how you say things is very different. And in all television, this is the thing that he did. That's why I liked when you were on with Max. I thought Max was great. But Max, God bless him. He's a great broadcaster. He's always trying to get everybody to believe what he was saying, which is really good. Right. You didn't. You're trying to get him to believe you believe what you're saying. That's real persuasion. I don't care. I don't care. In other words, you know, listen, I think Max is a great broadcaster, and I think that Max is a great person. Um, it didn't work out with us as partners because, in all honesty, of what you just pointed out. For the purposes of the debate show, in my opinion, and I think my opinion matters when you've been number one for 11 years, I think my opinion should matter in that format. You can't succeed if you're overly concerned with what people think about what you have to say. You have to be about the business of being as factually correct, as substantive and legitimate as you can possibly be with no regard for what people feel in a debate format. You can't worry about that. If they agree with you, they agree with you. If they don't, they don't. So what? They want to talk about you on social media and use you as clickbait to head to, to create headlines. So what? It doesn't matter. As long as they quote you accurately, okay? And they made sure that the audience heard what you said and contextualize it properly. I don't give two cents what anybody thinks because my attitude is I believe right. This is where I stand. And you need to know that when you're watching me, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what I think and what I believe. Now, you can disagree, but understand you're disagreeing with me. You're not convincing me to disagree with me because I don't feel that way. And I'm willing to stand on it in the face of scrutiny without being concerned. When Skip Bayless and I were together on First Take on ESPN, that's why we jump-started First Take the way that we did. There were two people that did not care what anybody thought as long as they felt in their hearts that they believed what they were saying, which is what he and I done, which is what he and I did. With, with others like Max, you're right. There was an, it was important for him to convince you to see his way. I don't care whether you see my way or not. I see my way, and that's what matters to me. Yeah, I want everybody, to, uh, honestly, I want you to go back and rewind the last two and a half minutes. It applies to persuasion, but also your dream. Whatever dream you're taking, you're pursuing in your life, if you start getting caught up in what other people think about it, their opinions about it, that they don't think you can do it, blah, 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 your vibrational frequency, your energy level, your certainty level, your confidence level is impacted by external results, feedback, yeah. information. You are just, you might still make it. But you've, you've increased the probability that you won't when you do that. Made the road tougher. You've you make it a lot tougher. tougher. So good, Stephen. Thank you for that. Like, that was so, so good. Now, I want you said you've been number one for 10 or 11 years, which you have. 11. What most yeah. people don't know, because most people are new to the program, like new to watching sports, right? Like, if it's been a decade. That wasn't always the case. So I want you to imagine something, everybody. You're pursuing your dream. You finally get a ticket to the big time. And you're at your dream. So a lot of you are like that. You're there right now. You're you're flowing, man. You've made some more money. You got a business growing. Your family's growing. You get to a point, and then bam, you lose it. It's taken. The, you know, if it's uh, you're an entrepreneur, the market change and you lost your business, or sales are down, or you've poured through money, or maybe you've lost a dream relationship. This man got the dream, and then got fired, or they basically didn't get renewed. 
and I didn't even know this until I read the book. And this is where your mom comes in again. And I know you've told this story, but ESPN basically says your contracts end up sometime in June. They basically tell you like in May, like, uh, thanks for coming out. You don't need to come back anymore. And this is fascinating to me. This man was successful. He's got a house in Jersey. Most people don't know this. He owned this house in Jersey at the time, like a 50, as I did my research, brother, 5,500 square foot house in Jersey. He gets canned. Instead of going home to his house, guess where he went? Went back to mama's house into the yes. same bed, basically, that he grew up in. And he Correct. basically lay there for three days, you know, licking your wounds and feeling bad for yourself and being pissed. And then this straight shooter in your life, which is the title of the book, comes along and does what? Tell me what your mom did and the lesson there. Well, you know, it wasn't at that time. I wasn't on first take. I had my own show, quite frankly, which had gotten canceled. It went, it went from... August of 2005 to January of 2007. I did about 327 shows, about 780 interviews that got canceled uh, because of low ratings. And then after that, um, uh, I was looking to get my contract renewed because I was still doing radio and I was still doing NBA count, NBA shoot around, what it was called at the time. And then I got stripped from that uh, because of, of a contract dispute and they kept me off an additional year. And then in, April of 2009, they told me that May 9th of that year was going to be my last day, even though my contract was to expire June, June 30th. And I was devastated. I went home um, and licked my wounds, so to speak. And I was furious and I felt just completely sabotaged and sipping all of this other stuff. And my mother brought me breakfast. She left me alone for the first two days. Then on, you know, after that, she brought me breakfast. And on breakfast, it was a little tray of breakfast. It was bagel, toasted bagel, and hot tea. I'm West Indian and stuff like that. My family's from the West Indies. Hot tea, milk, and sugar. And on the tray, she handheld mirror. And I was like, what was that? And she was like, I'm just wondering when you're going to look at yourself. When you're going to look at yourself. She said, and then she lit into me talking about how she had heard me talking on many occasions, talking about the bosses, talking about what I didn't like, what I was displeased about, whatever, whatever. And she said, you complained all the time. You complained about colleagues. You complained about, you know, co-workers. You complained about bosses, et cetera, et cetera. She said, you're not a boss and you wouldn't want anybody in your space that was that negative and complained like that. Why should the bosses want you? She said, so I'm sure that there's something that they did wrong. I'm sure that you deserve to go from having four jobs to having none. I'm sure all of that was true, but in the end, it's on you. You're the one that caused this. Your attitude wasn't right. Your demeanor wasn't right. Your spirit and your vibe wasn't right. You cover sports and you've got people in the locker rooms you called cancerous. Well, what were you? If they were cancerous, what were you? And she pointed out and she asked me, she asked all of those questions, albeit rhetorically, and then left. She said, you really need to spend the rest of time here, whether it's going to be a day or week or whatever, really, really looking at yourself. And before you think about what you're going to do next, ask yourself, what role did you play in getting to this point where you are unemployed and wondering whether or not you're going to have a career? And she walked out. And left here to lick my own wounds and to absorb everything that she said. And so um, it was it was it was really, really hard. I mean, that's hard to hear from anybody, but especially your own mother. And but that's what she told me. And uh, I remember it. I never forgot it. I held on to it. Um, it was a it was a life altering experience because from that moment forward, I never blamed anybody else again. I took the blame. Mm. Huge lesson right there. You also, I've heard you talk about that time and you kind of, here's what I see happen to a lot of people in life. And I know you see this, you see with athletes, you see with colleagues years, they kind of start to believe their press clippings a little bit mm -hmm. or they have like an overestimation of how far down the road or how untouchable right. they are. You know what I'm saying? And you, I think in that case, what you're saying is, yeah, you'd go out in public and everybody knew you. So you're like, Hey, I must be doing well, but you didn't even yeah. know your own metrics, your own data. And people, the fall of most people is they get some success and they start to believe it and they start to think they're going to have it forever. And they don't do the things they did that gets them there. They don't have the same level well, of humility. Don't you think there's true. nuance? I think there's a nuance. The people that I really admire in my life that are really good friends of mine, they have this nuance and it's difficult of tremendous self-confidence combined with some level of humility. And yeah. the people that I know with a ton of humility with no confidence, they don't ever get around to doing anything because they don't have any confidence. Right. And the people I know that have a bunch of confidence, but don't nuance it with some humility 
they can fall because they're the ones that will make the mistake. They, they Maybe they don't work like they once worked or their attitude, like what you've described with you, their attitude is maladjusted because they have some overestimation of where they are. So I'd like you to talk about that. And then secondly, the fact that you knew after that you were going to eventually need a team of people around you. And I don't think enough people take for granted surrounding themselves as good people. So what about humility and confidence in the team? Well, I think I think it's important to point this out. First of all, you're not wrong with anything that you said. Humility definitely is an important component that we all have to be sure that we have. There's no doubt about that. And the absence of it can lead to your downfall when you think you're bigger than what you are, because nothing annoys people more. I mean, particularly in the world of business, because they have the metrics, they have the expertise, they have the data. So in their eyes, they definit- they feel they definitively know exactly what you are. And if it doesn't coincide, your belief in you doesn't coincide with their belief in you. And if, if their belief in you is significantly less, then you look like a fool in their eyes. So that's important to point out. But I think that o- over time, certainly when there's an absence of humility and that can lead to our downfall, I think the thing that needs to be prioritized and focused on is the the, the hazard of not mastering the business you chose to be in. You know, when I went to the negotiating table just a few years ago and everybody was talking about this huge contract that I got from the SPN, where I deserved credit for it was the fact that I learned my business. I didn't go in there with emotion. I didn't go in there thinking about people screaming my name in the streets or being on billboards. I went in there with their definition of what makes or what qualifies as success. What were my ratings? What's the revenue that I brought in? Now, obviously, they hold those things close to the vest. So specific numbers you don't always have as it pertains to revenue generated. But you certainly have ratings every day. And you can certainly decipher what kind of money you're bringing in from a ballpark figure. So when I went to the negotiating table, here's what mastering my business did for me. Nothing was personal. I wanted what I wanted. Whatever they didn't want to give, they didn't want to give me. Whatever argument we had, it was based on the data. It was based on the intel. It was based on me defining what worth should be based on nothing but numbers, not emotion. And as a result, I got to depersonalize everything. It wasn't racism holding me back. It wasn't prejudice. It wasn't a particular boss that didn't like me or whatever the case may be. No, this was their definition of the analytical data they had gathered versus my definition of it. Let's talk. Let's have that discussion. And as a result of it, there was no bitterness. There was no hostility. There was no anything. This is what this is what I believe I'm worth. This is what I believe I deserve. This is what you believe I deserve. Let's get on. Let's have this conversation and see where this takes us. And so from the moment that that transpired, um, it taught me a very, very valuable lesson. When you're focused on your business, there's so much weight that customarily is on all of our shoulders that just goes away. The personal, the, the perception of things, the insinuations, wondering about what's personal and what's business, wondering about what the next person is making compared to you. You know, like I'm in now, it's the year 2023. Um, I'm interestingly told I'm the number one talent at ESPN. I am not paid like the number one talent at ESPN. Some, there are others that are getting paid more than me. Okay. I'm not bitter. I'm not upset. Do I think I'm underpaid? Yes. Do I think I deserve more? Yes. Am I coming for more in the event that I end up saying it? Yes. But there is no animosity because the people that they brought on board that are getting paid are worth every penny. They're great at what they do. They bring revenue to the table. They assist in the product flourishing. There's no animosity. There's no bitterness. There's no, oh, I deserve it because they got it. It's none of that. It's that it was my turn when I got my deal. It was their turn years later when they got their deal. And then my turn will come around again, and those things could be revisited. Because I know that what I'm going to table to the table with is what my worth is. 
at least in a ballpark way. And when you do that, because you've mastered your business, suddenly you depersonalize stuff. And it's easier to be humble at that particular moment in time because you're not worried about others trying to humble you. Therefore, getting your back up and motivating yourself to stick out your chest and bloviate about who you are and what you're worth and where you stand and what your cachet and stack is. You ain't worried about none of that anymore because you have the facts and the facts and the numbers support your belief in you. You don't have to do that. And everybody starts speaking the same language. And then you're unified in terms of what the agenda is all about. And then we're just talking business and that's okay. I love that. You know what? So many people, I don't care, you have to be in broadcasting. So many people waste energy worrying about what other people are doing or what other people yeah. are getting. They do that on social. They do it in business. They do it in entrepreneurship. Like it's just the people that I know that are the most successful, you guys, athletes, business people, entrepreneurs, entertainment folks, they, they, they know they have a finite amount of energy and focus mm. and every time they deploy some to some other human being, they know they're reducing it on their craft and what they can create and what they can do. Don't mm. waste your energy, hating, worrying, focusing on contemplating what someone else is getting or doing. Just go get yours well, and focus on yours. I, I will, I will, I would like to add this component. If you don't mind, it's very, very important to say to your audience out there. When you are a black person, it's very difficult to do at times because you do feel there is an inequity being exercised and it's very difficult not to pay attention to that. My advice is it's even more important when you're black to focus in on mastering your business, the business of you, because we're more apt to personalize it. We're more apt to see an ad and say, is he getting this and I'm not? I wonder what that's about. We're more apt to do that. But far more often than not, we don't have the data back up our belief in ourselves. And so we lean on what someone else is getting compared to what we're not getting because we need some form of justification. Whereas if we mastered our business like we just finished talking about, then we don't have to worry about that because now I'm to the table with numbers that are undeniable. When I say first take has been number one for 11 years, Ed, I'm not lying. The data's there. It's a fact. So I'm not worried about, oh my goodness, inequities and, and, and this is not fair and all of this other stuff, whatever. I have the numbers that say I kind of deserve to be treated fairly. So let's talk about that. This is what my definition of fairness was yours. And that's without bringing anybody else up. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about Shopify. You know, when I started the show, the furthest thing from my mind was doing online business. And now I can't imagine my life without it. So I love Shopify because they're a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. So whether you're in the startup phase where you're just launching your online store, or you're at that really big business where you're like, hey, we just hit a million bucks in order stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. They've helped me through every single stage. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. So whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered big time. They help turn browsers into buyers. They convert their checkouts 36% better than all the leading competitors. And I've used them for everything I do online. So every single thing you see that I market online, Shopify is somehow involved. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mylet, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mylet now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash mylet. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, listen, we're all carrying around some form of stress, big or small. And you don't want to keep things bottled up. It's healthy to talk out loud with somebody about things that are bothering you or that are weighing on your mind or just decisions that you need to make. And that's why therapy from BetterHelp is one of the most helpful things you can do for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it'll empower you to be the best version of yourself. And it's not just for those that have experienced major trauma. Therapy is for people that just want to work through things and maybe learn to make decisions better, work through an emotion that's not serving them right now. And so if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, it's flexible, and it can be suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll get matched with a licensed therapist. If you don't click, you can switch therapists anytime you want for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash EdShow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash EdShow. Hmm. I've always wanted to ask you this. That topic comes up a lot on your show, and it always the camera always turns to you. So if there's it's a topic, race? yes, and the okay. camera ends up, end up coming to you. Mm-hmm. And I watch you some mornings, and I've always wanted to ask you. And I know you. I think I know what you're going to say, but I really would. I really want to know the answer to this. Do you ever feel a, an odd pressure? I know you said earlier, hey, I just this is what I think, whether you like it or not. That's what I think. But do you ever, because I know you get feedback pro and con, right? Like I'm sometimes, hey, why didn't you stand up for another American more? Why didn't you All do it more, right? Or yeah. you're being hard on Kyrie Irving. Why are you so yep. hard on him and you're easier on Aaron Rodgers? Yeah. And the other side of it is, you know, you got other guys going, oh, gosh, here he goes again. We're going to have to talk about there's not enough black NFL football coach. You know the deal, yep. right? Yeah. How do you nuance that? Does it, do you ever, does that weigh on you? Does it, does it? I even watched you just breathe out loud when I asked you, right? Like I it, sometimes I feel for you, like this man's got to say what he believes, and if one thing's not strong enough, or it's too strong over there, and and that's oh, just, how is that? that how's that, that impact you? That frustration is very real. Um, I'd be a phony and a lie if I denied it. Um, I am not absolutely true, but here's what's exhausting: it's not white people that have me exhausted; it's black people. Because you have, unfortunately, people in my community that you can agree with each other 99% of the time. And it's incredibly unfortunate. And I know of no other race of people who do that to each other. And it really, really is unfortunate that diverse opinions and what have you is not something that can be embraced more without people trying to character assassinate you. That's our community. That's our issue. That's what we have to deal with. Um, And there are a lot of historians uh, and educators who are older, far more knowledgeable about than I am to speak to that cogently um, in an expert way. Having said all of that, I'm still not backing up. And the reason I'm not backing up is because as somebody who's on live television, a minimum of 10 hours a week, I do feel an inherent obligation to make sure that the voices emanating from my community are heard. I feel no obligation to agree. I just feel an obligation to give a voice to the voiceless, to make sure that there are people out there who don't look like me and come from my community, that they identify with what is being said from my community so you at least understand where folks are coming from. Then you can formulate whatever opinion you feel the need to formulate. That's where I come in. Because for me, I don't care. I love my people. I'm a proud black man. And I say it often. I'm not just a black man. I'm a brother. I'm a brother to brothers and sisters in the black community. That's who I am. And I ain't changing. But that does not mean that I have to agree with you. I'm the youngest of six. Do you think I agree with my brothers and sisters all the time? I'm the youngest child of, of Janet and, and, and Ashley Smith. Do you think I agree with them all the time? No, I did not. We started off this interview talking about how I disagree with my father and some of the friction that that caused. Of course, it's inevitable. So for us to act like we have to march lockstep, tooth and nail, every single time is utterly ridiculous. But there is an obligation, a feel, to make sure that the voices emanating from your community that are relatively squashed, elevate in stature and impact because their voice is heard through you, even while I'm disagreeing. It's okay because I'm not white. And what I say to white America all the time, and there's no shade on this whatsoever, white folks go to work today with, every day with a job to do. Black folks come with a responsibility. If Ed is doing his podcast, chances are you're going to have white folks throughout America and the world listening to him. They either like it or they dislike it. They don't say to you, as far as I've never met a white person that is acknowledged, white folks have said to him, because you're white, you got to say this. 
But black folks do that to black folks all the time. Trayvon Martin was not a sports issue. I had to talk about Trayvon Martin. George Floyd was not a sports issue. I had to talk about George Floyd, okay? And and, and, and Philando Castillo and others. I had to talk about these things. Because the black community was like, what you gonna do? What you gonna say? You can't sit up there with that platform and be quiet. You gotta say it. And not only does the black community tell you you gotta say something, they try to tell what you should say. And so you have to fight all of that while doing your job while having your heightened sensitivities, while knowing there's different communities out there who think differently than the community that's pressuring you to say what they want you to say. And all of this is in real time on live television, no seven second delay, no tape delay, is literally live. What you see is what you get. That's my life. Wow. I wanted to ask you that for 10 years and I appreciate you being so, actually makes me, Oh, I, I don't think about what I don't think about. Right. Cause I don't have that issue that no, right. there's never, never, no one's ever said to me, Hey man, you need to stand up for, you know, you gotta say yes. it our way. That never happened before. And I, and yep. the pressure or the thought of that running through my head while I'm still trying to articulate a thought. Yes. And it's carrying that with you every single day is, uh, yeah. On every issue. Yeah. On it's, every it's, single it's, issue. It's race. It's domestic violence. It's, it's, it's police brutality. It's immigration. It's, 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 it's everything because it affects people differently. The white community, I often use this phrase, when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. It's always worse for us. So because you have a community out there, a minority community that is the black community that recognizes and lives with that reality every day, it compounds the level of pressure because everything is brought back to race because of how it affects one ethnic group compared to another. And all of this I have to deal with live. And let me be very, very clear, Ed, I'm talking to you right now. It's a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. My brother, Hollywood stars, politicians, professional athletes, Fortune 500 executives, all of these people text me while I'm on the air, in the middle of the segment, trying to tell me what position I should take and why. This happens every, why do you think you'll see me at times looking down or I'm texting or whatever, literally during the segment, while I'm listening to the debate now, while I'm listening to the counterpoint, while I'm going through all of these things, or when a subject is teased and we go to commercial and we come back and you come back and you see me down because they saw the subject being teased and they're texting me, telling me their position and what my position should be and why. It's, it, it's from Tinseltown to, to Wall Street to Capitol Hill. But as a journalist at heart, I can never reveal who those people are, nor would I. I would never do that. But that is my life every weekday. Every weekday. And I mean every weekday. Even to the point, Ed, when I go on vacation, I've had those type of people. What the hell are you? You can't be at a vacation at a time like this. You got to get back on air. Literally. This this has been my life for the better part of the last decade. My gosh. I didn't, I knew there was a burden, but I had no idea it was that big. I do see you looking down at your phone often, and I have frankly figured, thought, someone's blowing him up right now, telling him what, yeah. what point needs to be made here. Yes. Thank you for uh, letting, totally true. letting us decide. Is it, is it, I've asked a lot of people this, that win. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yes. Um, I got to tell you, first of all, I'm blessed, but contrary to what people believe it's not just because of the money, because the money that I'm making is recent. Wasn't always the case. You know, I was in this business 15 plus years before I got paid. Let's make sure we're clear about that. You know, you can talk about me making seven figures, but let's six figures after uncle Sam gets a hold of it, unless you up there. Okay, so let's be very clear about that. That's number one. But I'm blessed because these professional athletes that I cover, you marvel at. Their focus, their determination, their commitment to excellence, et cetera. These coaches, 
these executives, the level of intellect that they have, um, how enlightened they are, their commitment to contributing to the world being a better place, league officials. I know Adam Silver, the commissioner. He's a good man. He's a good man. David Stern, his predecessor, God rest his soul, was an acquired taste, but someone I grew to love. Um, you know, collective bargaining. Why would I know anything about that? Because it was taught to me by a former executive director of the Players Association, along with a forensic accountant. That's how I became the master of this stuff. Um, to 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 have the connections, the P Hollywood, this. There's people in Hollywood, the Denzel Washingtons, the Jamie Foxes, the Chris Rocks of the world, the, and so many, and so, you know, the, the hip-hop game, Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg and Run DMC, Method Man, and all of these folks that you run across, Nelly and others. There's so many politicians, Maxine Waters and, 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 and so many various others. You know, the pundits from... Sean Hannity to Don Lemon to Mark Levin and 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 all to Joy Reid and the, the, to professors like Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, Mark Lamont Hill, and various others, to colleagues of mine like Mike Wilbon from the Washington Post that's now at ESPN, Tony Kornheiser, and you know the list, the late great Ralph Wiley and others. I have been so incredibly blessed to be touched. Every single one of those individuals that I've met, that I've mentioned, they are brilliant at what they do, and it is nothing compared to their humanity. Nothing. These people are some special, special breed of people. And each and every single one of them have blessed me at one point in time or another over the course of my career with their knowledge, their wisdom, and their humanity, that when I go on the air, I take it with me. So even if I slip up, and let's say, for example, there's something I've done wrong, I, I might have seen a bit too cruel this particular day, I might have seen a bit too acerbic, I might have been, you know, it might have been anything. I'm always able to dial it back eventually because of their presence in my life and their contribution to my soul. You know, my pastor, A.R. Bernard of Christian Cultural Center, who's a very popular pastor in New York, uh, a city, Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York. He's somebody that I consider to be my spiritual father. I've loved him dearly for years. And he is an individual that always espouses words of wisdom and reminds me of the soul he knows I have. And he doesn't have to critique me. He sits up there and says, all he ever says to me is, be the Stephen A. I know and love. And I know exactly what that means. And so because of that, momentary lapses aside, for the most part, because I know where my soul is and the kind of human being that I strive to be and what kind of impact I ultimately try to have, then it takes me to ESPN and say, you know something? I've been underpaid and all of this other stuff, but I'm paid well. You know, I, I could have better positions, but I got a pretty good position. And then I think about, I'm talking about Bob Iger, who is the mastermind to me, maybe the greatest executive I've ever seen in my life. I know these people personally. I communicate with them personally. I do all the time. And, and to have that in my life makes me incredibly, incredibly appreciative of the position that I'm in, which takes off some of the weight. It's like... Jimmy, Jimmy Pitaro, president of ESPN, he had this mandate, which I completely supported, where he talked about, you know, we got to veer away from the political because people come to us for sports and we're doing too much politics. This is what he did company mandate years ago when he first arrived. And I supported him because we got to give the audience what they're looking for. And then when the whole social justice movement came about and it was related, so many people had stuff to say and people want to go on these different shows and all of this other stuff. Jimmy Pitaro said, you can go, you can do it. I trust you. I trust you because I know that you're going to see the big picture and that you're not going to intentionally decide what's sensitive to us just because you want to speak.
And so what I'm saying is when you have a boss that says something like that to you, that ain't just a job anymore. It's a responsibility, but one that you embrace because you know they place faith in you. And when they place faith, when people place faith in you, you know this by virtue of what you're doing with your podcast. When people place faith in you, you feel an inherent obligation because of your own entity to deliver upon their expectations because they didn't have to trust you, but they did. And that is what I feel. Yeah, you know, I've always um, respected you. Uh, I just want to tell you this. I know a lot of people feel this way. We just got a couple more minutes here, everybody. But I got a couple really cool things to ask him last. But, you know, I really like you. I really like you. You're a special Thank man. You. You're a special man. Like, there's a... You see someone on TV, you see one dimension of them. And when you get a blessing to have an hour with them, you see someone like you, the the multiple dimensions of somebody. And uh, there's so much depth to you. It's not a surprise that you're where you are. So, hey, guys, you know when I love technology and a great idea revolutionizes an old industry. And by the way, if there's an industry that needs a revolution, I think you'd agree with me, it's the healthcare industry. It's not easy to find good doctors. And by the way, good doctors that are in your area that also take your insurance. And that's why I love ZocDoc. They are revolutionizing the healthcare industry and the way you get access to doctors. ZocDoc, by the way, is Z-O-C-D-O-C. Here's who they are. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Tons of different reviews on the doctors and they're local to you. You can find out if they take your insurance. I just did it for a tear I had in my shoulder. One day later, I'm in the doctor's office getting some help, getting an order for an MRI. So go to ZocDoc.com slash MyLet and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MyLet. ZocDoc.com slash MyLet. And I want to ask you about that. A couple last things. Um, yeah. What is the Thank separator? Yeah, it's just true. I really, really admire you. I've always admired and respected you, but man, I really like you. Um, what is the separator of the of the? So there's these levels in life. There's the, there's the, there's everybody. Then there's like these all star type players. Then there's the Hall of Famers, and then there's like the goat level. And in your career, you're now getting to that conversation, arguably, of the goat level, right? And I've got some. One of my best friends is Jim Rome. I consider him. Goat. He's a good man. Yeah, he's such a good him. man. Jim's been brother. on. We love him too. And he's goat level, but now you're in that conversation, like the LeBron Jordan, you know, the, the conversation and, and, um, you got the Brady's, you got the Denzel's, you got the Igers, you got the, the Kobe's, you got the, the, or the MJ's, you got that level. What is, what do you, is there a through line with them to you that there's a separator in them? Is there a, is something about them? Is it some, spirit thing in them is it a energy a vibration is it a work it's, ethic it's, is it a desire what is it it's two things it's an aura and it is their humanity their humanity propels them to different heights because whatever they're aspiring to achieve is never just them it's always for something more. I can tell you right now that when I am in the presence of Bob Iger, this man heads Disney. I can go to Iger and ask for something. Probably wouldn't happen most times. Sometimes it might. I ask him for nothing. I'm honored to be in his presence. I know I'm in the presence of greatness. I, 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 it's When this man walks into a room, it's something different. Ed. As an executive, if you watch other executives in his presence, they're in the presence of greatness. They know this, even though they're great, because that's the kind of impact he has. When I'm on the phone with Michael Jordan, I know I'm talking to greatness. Now he's a normal dude and we have the kind of relationship where we can communicate on a normal level, but make no mistake. I know 
I'm talking to Michael Jordan. I know who I'm talking to. You see what I'm saying? I know who he is and what he is when he walks into a room. And again, people look at him, for example, and they see the struggles with his franchise. Michael Jordan's struggle with his franchise isn't because of basketball. Michael Jordan struggles with his franchise is because he's Michael Jordan. And because he's achieved so much, there's so many darts and arrows aimed in his direction. He has the Jordan brand. And that's something that consistently has to be protected. It's something that he has to do with all the time. Who do you trust? Who do you confide in? Who do you think about? Who do you want in your inner circle? He has to think about things the average person does not have to think about. Bob Iger, on the other hand, is somebody that has led Disney over 15, 16 years, retired, and then had to come back to save it, okay? And make no mistake about it, I have no doubt, with or without me, he is going to do it because he's that phenomenal. Why? Because everything that Disney epitomizes and represents for the betterment of our society, he has something to do with because he's been associated with the company since the 70s. The man is just that phenomenal. And so when you look at it from that perspective and you think about it's not just about him. It's about the greater good and the greater whole and sustained excellence. No fly by night, fly in the pan, I'm successful today, but I'm back to ground zero tomorrow. No, constant process of elevation. When you're around people like that, you can't help but be continuously affected. You have no choice because to do otherwise makes you feel like you're lesser. It makes you feel like you're lesser of a performer and it makes you feel like you're lesser of a humanitarian because chances are the reason you went successful is because you were around them and you use that as an opportunity to think about yourself instead of thinking about what you could take from them to help others every bit as much as they do. And that is what it's all about. That's what an extraordinary conversation this is. <laughs> oh my gosh. I you I want to go I just want to say this. I said what's the separator? He said aura and humanity. Just process that. You know how few people would answer the question that way? And in my experience, that's exactly right. And that aura is confidence, is their work ethic, is their achievement, is their frequency of, you know, caring about other people. It is their human. It's exactly right. When you met, I'm sure, I don't know, you probably met 44. You met uh, Barack or Clinton or yes. George W. Bush. All these guys, man, there's an aura about them. And there's a humanity to them as well. Whatever you believe politically, there's a humanity to them. It's exactly the right answer. Well, if you look at it, that's the problem that we're having now. We're questioning whether where's the humanity for folk, from folks on Capitol Hill. And, 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 but, but, you know what? but you know what we haven't done enough of? What we haven't done is look at today's day. Look at the lack or the absence of humanity because everybody's only concerned about their side, right? We haven't rewind the clock and say, you know what? We kind of owe Bill Clinton an apology. We kind of owe George W. Bush an apology. We kind of owe Al Gore an apology. We kind of owe Barack Obama an apology because all four people that I mentioned, and of course there were others who preceded them as well, but all four individuals that I mentioned, regardless of what you thought about their politics, at the end of the day, you can look at all of them and genuinely say they were doing what they thought was best for the country. I'm talking about in terms of how they conducted themselves. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking strictly how you conduct yourself. I don't need to act this way because that's a reflection on other people. Yeah, they made mistakes and stuff like that. But I'm just talking about not a total disregard for decorum and decency, and communicating amongst yourselves because you want to send a message to the American people that this is how we should be acting with one another as human beings. Yeah, Bill Clinton that's had this great important. saying. You're so right. Bill Clinton had this great saying that was like, listen, the debate should be about if, who's right or wrong, not who's good or bad, you know, Correct. evil or horrible. And it's just become, you're evil, I'm good, you're evil, that's I'm right. good, back and forth. Correct. Question because we're over on time. So last thing, by the way, I've enjoyed this thoroughly, and I, I want to thank you for it in advance. So I. I want everybody to get straight shooter. Let me tell you something. The first, if we had more time, we would have gone into this. This first chapter about his father and his mother's passing. And by the way, 
Your mother's immensely proud of you, brother. And even today, I bet she'd be really proud of this conversation. It's a little bit different one than the ones you have on all these other shows. Like, uh, I don't need to tell you, but man, to have a son that's just achieved what you've achieved and contributes what you contribute. And to say some of the things you said today, man, your mother's love and work and wisdom shines through you. And it does in this book as well, everybody. So I want you to go get Straight Shooter by Stephen A. Smith. He's already sold a whole bunch of them, but let's add to the pile of them. Last thing, fun question. Just because everyone knew you are coming, unlike you better ask him about this, so we're going to go light to finish. Sure. LeBron versus MJ, the GOAT conversation. I think you and yeah. I come down on the same side here, but I, wanna, I want this, this, this will be the clip, ironically, that people talk about because it'll be at the end. Who's the GOAT? And if it is Michael Jordan, is there anything LeBron could do the next five years that would change your opinion about it? If it is, Michael it is Michael Jordan, and there's nothing Michael Jordan, there's nothing LeBron James could do in my eyes, um, because I because what I I respect the hell out of LeBron James. He's an incredible ambassador for the game. He's an incredible role model. He's somebody that I admire, respect, and and acknowledge. We will miss him when he is gone. He is something special. But the reality is, is when I think about Michael Jordan, I think about a six-time champion who was never defeated in the championship series, never allowed the championship series to go seven games, um, was an MVP in every single one of those championship finals, a 10-time scoring champion. He's a nine-time all-NBA defensive team member, okay, uh, with multiple league MVPs. The list just goes on and on. And so when I think about Michael Jordan from that standpoint, I also never encountered the situation where there was an NBA Finals loss, I could blame on him, could blame the loss to the Dallas Mavericks on LeBron James. That never happened to Michael Jordan. I can look at LeBron early in his career and say he's scared to go to the free throw line when it counted most. I can never say that about Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And so when I think about those things and I think about the physicality of the game, times that we were living in, the road to prosperity that had to be traveled then compared to what it is now in terms of the absolute obvious physicality that was allowed, that's disallowed in today's NBA game. I take all of those things into consideration to jump to the conclusion that I have jumped to. If we're talking resumes, it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Russell, 11 titles in 13 years, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 19-time All-Star, six-time champion, six-time MVP, you know, all of these different things. The only individual in the history of the sport with one signature unstoppable move that was never duplicated or emulated in any way. But you can debate that. I still say the versatility of LeBron James, along with his four championships and his 10 trips to the NBA finals, says enough that he's on a Mount Rushmore of basketball as one of the top two players in the history of basketball. But it doesn't make him Michael Jordan. Not in my eyes, and it never will. That's so good. I've loved this today, and what I'm excited about for you is that when you're done with your career, there'll be you're on the Mount Rushmore, and there'll be a debate too. Someone will be asking so and so against Stephen A. Smith, and yeah. you're already in that conversation. You're such a young man, so congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on the book, and I look forward to building a friendship with you, brother. Because today you was got one, you got one, my brother. I really, really enjoyed this. Looking forward to coming back on in the future. Thank you so much for giving me time. This was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. All right, everybody, share the show. God bless all of you. Max out your life. This is The Ed Milet Show.